This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for making it along to this session. It's called Crisis Without Borders. Uh, just to start, today we'll uh, begin by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners of the country that we're standing on at the moment. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the lands of the Gadigal people, which is a people of the Eora Nation. Uh, and I pay my respects, I'm sure you do as well, to their elders past and present. Well, the numbers are pretty staggering. At the moment, uh, you would hear it frequently in the news that we're witnessing the, the highest numbers of displacement at any time on record. Right now, an unprecedented 65.3 million people around the world have been forced from their homes. Among them are nearly 21.3 million refugees. And more than half of those are under the age of 18. There are some 10 million people that have been rendered stateless. And believe it or not, every day, 34,000 people are forced from their homes. We've got a remarkable panel uh, to lead us in this conversation today. There'll be about 40 minutes of discussion with them and then questions, we hope, from you. On the end of the panel uh, is Philippe Legrain, who's a critically acclaimed thinker and communicator, who's been a senior policy advisor. He's a senior visiting fellow at the London School of Economics, European Institute, and he's the founder of the Open Political Economy Network called Open. It's a, an international think tank. Next to him on the panel is the Economist Environment Correspondent, Miranda Johnson. And next to me is Jane McAdam, who's a Professor of Law and Director of the Andrew and Renata Calder Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. She's a non-resident senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institute in Washington. Uh, she also publishes widely in international refugee law and forced migration, with a particular focus on climate change and mobility. So I'm sure there's very few questions that you can think of that they won't be able to answer, or at least I hope that's the case. Uh, can I start with you, Philippe Legrain? You come here from Europe, which is clearly facing a crisis, to a country, Australia, which has been dealing with this question of refugees and how to handle it in terms of policy for, for a long time. Uh, what's your perspective uh, on this issue from a European perspective being here in Australia? Well, the global context is that six in seven refugees are actually in developing countries. Um, so the countries that are actually like, most affected, for example, by the civil war in Syria uh, is uh, neighboring uh, Lebanon and uh, Turkey uh, and Jordan. And even the numbers who have arrived in Europe uh, last year, which were you know, pretty large, a bit over a million, um, are, are much smaller than those in, in, in the immediate vicinity. In terms of Australia, I mean, the people um, who uh, the government allows in, uh, the numbers are tiny, uh, both in terms of the n numbers of refugees worldwide and in terms of the Australian population. And in terms of, you know, the fear about um, uh, the few who arrive uh, by boat is completely out of proportion um, uh, to uh, the numbers. Can you draw a connection for us, though, in terms of how the politics plays out in response to these issues in both places? 
Well, I think that clearly um, the refugee issue is one that um, creates very strong emotions, which um, some politicians manipulate for their own purposes. Uh, so you see that uh, in Europe, far-right politicians like Marine Le Pen uh, in France or the alternative for Germany uh, in Germany um, are using this issue to try and um, uh, focus the anger of people of, for all sorts of reasons uh, onto refugees and onto the government. Uh, and here you see um, you know, a government which shamelessly uh, manipulates this uh, for its own advantage. Um, you know, creating or helping to um, ferment uh, these outside uh, scares and dehumanising uh, people who have committed no crime uh, who are merely um, seeking refuge here. Miranda Johnson, what's your reaction to what you see in Australia coming also from Europe? Um, I think it's interesting that you can come uh, such a long way um, and a lot of the uh, political tensions um, seem to resonate with each other. Um, uh, immigration um, and concern around immigration was obviously uh, an issue uh, which um, was very prominent during the uh, campaign uh, for Brexit. Um, and uh, it was, you know, arguably a misdiagnosis of uh, problems related to um, employment or social support, um, but people sort of um, blamed problems um, upon immigration. Um, and so I think that it is um, a, a concern throughout the rich world. Um, and again, it is, um, I, I agree with Philippe, it's something that politicians are sort of tacking onto. Mm. There is a sort of key detail, though, in Britain that the Brexit campaigners ran very hard on the uh, sort of open borders policy within the European Union. The government of the day had said it would and could bring uh, migrant numbers down, sort of making the differentiation here between refugees and migrants from within the EU, but ultimately they couldn't. Uh, and there was no real mechanism for them to do that uh, as members of the EU. I can see Philippe trying to get in, but we'll get an answer, first of all, from, from Miranda. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very powerful, powerful campaigning tactic. Absolutely, and I think David Cameron paid the price for, you know, uh, nailing his colours to the mast on a particular number. Um, and I think that there's um, a lack of transparency around much of this and that politicians can be disingenuous when, you know, they make these, these kind of claims when actually we know the issue um, is kind of more intricate, more, more ingrained than that. Um, what I would say is that sort of with, with regards to the, the Schengen zone, um, that there needs to be um, a kind of more open forum to hear, you know, people's concerns about um, that, that, that particular mechanism so that I think a lot, a lot of the problem was that people felt like they weren't being listened to. Um, but um, ultimately, it, it, it is difficult for politicians to come out and sort of play to those, those fears, but at times, in the far right can kind of drag them um, in that direction. Philippe, I knew those sunglasses were going to come in handy at some <laughs> point. Uh, you want to chip in on that? Sure. I mean, you know, Britain is not part of the Schengen area where border controls have been abolished. So while EU citizens are free uh, to move to Britain um, unimpeded, uh, refugees uh, are not allowed, and you can see that's why they're camped out uh, in Calais, um, you know, nearest uh, the border. Um, uh, and um, uh, so the idea that somehow 
um, uh, that this was a reason to leave the EU because somehow Britain was powerless to stop refugees coming in uh, simply isn't true. You see that actually refugee numbers uh, in the UK are bas basically stable. It's roughly 30,000 uh, asylum applications a year. The, the government has only agreed to take in 20,000 Syrians over five years. It hasn't even meeting that target yet. So these are absolutely um, uh, tiny numbers um, uh, and um, uh, completely out of proportion again uh, to um, uh, the fear and loathing that it creates. Jane McAdam, to that point, both in Europe and, and in Australia, there is this conflation of the question about migration and refugees, and in terms of numbers, it does tend to get quite confused. That's right, and I think many people are surprised when they learn that refugees form a, a really tiny component of the number of uh, migrants overall that come into Australia each year. I mean, every year, Australia's permanent new migrant intake is 190,000. The Australian government has a, a figure for refugees of 13,750. And in the last year, we haven't taken even that number. Um, it's really interesting if you look back. In 1949 to 1950, after the war, 48% of Australia's new migrants were actually refugees. And in 1975, it was about 25%. So the numbers are really tiny. I mean, I think 2014 to 15, actually only about 3% of, of um, people coming to Australia were actually refugees. And if you put that into the global context we've been discussing, the vast majority of refugees are being hosted in countries neighbouring the ones from which they've fled. Um, a quarter of Lebanon's population now are refugees. So I think Australia has um, a very... Um, disproportionate understanding of both the, the numbers here but also where we fit in an international context. So can you unpack that for us? Why does Australia have that almost purest view of sovereignty? I think it comes from um, the political rhetoric that we've seen over the last two decades. Um, there has been a lot of um, emotive language, the, the language of deterrence rather than protection being used, um, a demonisation of asylum seekers who come by boat, this idea that there are the so-called good refugees who wait in a non-existent queue for us to bring them here, and the so-called bad refugees who actually take their lives into their own hands to try and find safety and protection. And unfortunately, that has seeped into, I think, the, the public consciousness. And it's very hard to unpack that after two decades of that kind of talk, um, particularly when it is interlaced with fears around uh, terrorism, around religion, around resources, um, which, as we know from, you know, for time immemorial, when, when you tap into people's fears, um, that is very powerful emotionally, and it's much harder to then undo that with all the evidence that is out there plain and clear for everybody to see. Is there something, though, bigger, broader, deeper in the Australian psyche in relation to sovereignty that causes us this consternation? Is it to do with us being an island continent, very remote, our history within Asia, the kind of fear of 
of invasion historically? Certainly we can trace that um, through, you know, right back to when uh, there was awful talk of the, you know, yellow hordes invading from the north. I mean, that idea of an island mentality has been there for a long time. Australians seem to have a, a real fear of people um, coming from across the seas. Um, but that said, I think we only need to also look to other moments in history. Um, you know, to some extent there's been a romanticisation of the Fraser era, but it still has to be said that there was strong political leadership at that time that said to a, a population that also was a bit nervous about taking in asylum seekers from Cambodia and Vietnam, to say, we are screening people, we are only taking refugees who need our protection, we are equipped to do this, we have an obligation to do this. And that was really the first time that Australia showed um, its very solid commitment to the Refugee Convention. And it welcomed large, well, I mean, again, relatively not large numbers, but nonetheless welcomed refugees onto our soil who are people who have made an extraordinary contribution over time and I think are some of our most successful citizens today. Miranda, what is unique... <laughs> what is unique, Miranda Johnson, about the current refugee crisis in terms of the response from the countries which are affected? Um, I think that's an, an interesting question. I think that um, probably the timing of the financial crisis um, uh, that, you know, it, well, sort of its beginnings were prior to 2008, but, you know, really kind of became manifest um, in 2008 have played into it because I think that, um, you know, economic woes have helped, you know, the, the problem of kind of misdiagnosis um, I, I mentioned earlier, and it's created... Um, uh, you know, social tensions, particularly around employment, that mean that sort of um, divisions have arguably intensified and have helped foster this growing sense of um, political uh, unrest, um, political fractiousness and, and the, the rise of far-right parties. What about the impact of sort of environmental change globally? How is that shaping uh, the crisis as you see it now? So... With climate change, um, what we expect, what we're starting to get, um, what we're getting slightly better at attributing to climate change is, you know, essentially uh, greater variability um, and sort of greater extremes, um, you know, more, more extreme weather events, so sort of sudden greater downpours relating to flooding and uh, coastal flooding. And it's um, in sort of areas of, of the Middle East, there was an influential paper published last year, which sort of looked into some of the issues surrounding um, you know, the need for water in Syria and a drought um, that may or may not have played into the conflict there. I think Prince Charles um, picked this up ahead of the COP21 negotiations last year, and it sort of um, it got rather plastered all over the, the, the newspapers in England in a way that kind of perhaps overstated the claims of this particular study, um, particularly given that Turkish dam building was also an issue in that. But there's, there's no doubt that climate change can uh, affect land use, um, can affect um, resource access, and that these things um, can help, help create, you know, it's, it's nuanced nexus of, of factors, but can help create um, unrest. Philippe, you've done this work to analyse the sort of economic impact of uh, refugees 
arriving in countries. Can you explain the sort of the simple version uh, of what you think the benefit for countries is of, of accepting refugees? Well, yeah, we did a, a, a global study uh, looking at um, the contribution that uh, refugees make. And the headline finding was that investing $1 uh, in helping uh, refugees need, leads to nearly $2 in benefits within five years. And that comes from the initial spending um, uh, on refugees tends to be on local goods and services. So it boosts demand in the economy and therefore it boosts growth, a bit like a fiscal stimulus would do. And then once refugees um, start working or start businesses, uh, start paying taxes, um, uh, that in turn provides um, a further boost. And you know, there, our study is global, but there have been you know, several studies uh, here in Australia, and all of them find uh, a, a strongly positive contribution um, from refugees, whether it is the fact that refugees are the most entrepreneurial migrants uh, here uh, in Australia, uh, whether it is um, uh, the fact that they become net contributors to public finances after 12 years, which is uh, sooner than uh, the average Australian, since you know, when you're a child you're not a net contributor. Um, uh, so actually, um, uh, in, in all sorts of ways, um, or as you mentioned already, some of the most successful um, Australians, if you look at the rich list, both the third and the fourth um, on, on the, in the top ten um, arrived as, as post-war um, uh, refugees. I was just going to ask Philippe, when you say spend a, a, a dollar, I, I was wondering who exactly spend and, and how exactly spend? Um, it's in, in most countries, the spending on, initial spending on refugees is done by the government. Uh, in some countries, you have privately sponsored refugees. Um, uh, and uh, in some cases, there are, uh, in a very rare cases, there are self-sponsoring refugees who are obviously wealthy, wealthy enough to sustain themselves. There is clearly governments the world over think that population growth is a good thing and humanitarian intake can form part of a, a population growth plan. But societies, particularly in Europe, are finding it difficult to accept the, the pace and scale of change that refugee intakes as well as migrant intakes happening simultaneously present them with. Is that economic argument enough to counter what people feel quite viscerally about the changing shape of their community? Well, the pace and scale of change is, you know, in terms of refugee numbers is not particularly large. Um, uh, you know, if the one million refugees who arrived last year is 0.2% of the EU population of 500 million. In, but, but it's not in Britain, happening in isolation, in, in is Britain, it's happening 30, at the same time 30,000 30, asylum, 30, asylum seekers, some of whom will be rejected in, in Britain out of a population of 64 million, is a drop in the ocean. You're not even going to notice it. So it's... Um, uh, I, I, so, I, I, so why are people noticing it? Is it because they're confused about the migrants and the refugees? Is it because they're confused about what the change is that's happening in front of them? Well, I think clearly um, last year um, the you know, pictures of large numbers of people on the move um, sparked, I, I guess, in Europe similar fears to those which are sparked here in Australia um, by the perception that um, you know, loads of boats are arriving and, and, and um, the country is being overrun. Uh, actually, if you look in, in terms of the actual numbers, um, uh, they're not particularly large. And if you, if you look at the, at, at the arrivals not as a threat, um, uh, but as an opportunity, uh, then you see things rather differently. But, but I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is there's lots of voters in countries like Germany, France, the United Kingdom, that see their communities changing very rapidly. They're seeing different faces, hearing different languages, and unquestionably, they're voting in a way which says they feel uncomfortable with that. 
in, in terms of immigration in general, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's clearly part of the Brexit vote and part of the rise of the far right uh, in many countries uh, is um, the blaming on immigrants in general, uh, economic problems that people may or may suffering or the, may, may, or may, may be suffering. Uh, it's um, uh, blaming immigrants for changes in society um, uh, that people um, uh, dislike. Um, uh, and uh, just you know, simple uh, xenophobia. Jane McAdam, can I just ask you for a bit of your analysis and insight into the way in which the Refugee Convention works? Given this enormous scale of displacement we have today, do you think that the, the framework, if you like, that we have for dealing with this is fit for purpose? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the Refugee Convention does and what it doesn't do. So to be clear, it was never an instrument designed to manage migration flows. What it was designed to do was to create a principled legal framework that enables refugees to have access to basic rights, things like right to housing, right to access education, right not to be discriminated against, and so on. And in particular, the right not to be returned to a place where they have a well-founded fear of being persecuted or otherwise subjected to serious harm. Now, in that sense, the Refugee Convention has proven itself to be a very robust, uh, dynamic human rights instrument. Where the problem is, is the political will that hasn't been there to give effect to it all the time. Which political will are we talking about? Individual states? Yeah, for sure. So there's that with individual countries uh, trying to effectively, like we've seen in Australia, set up roadblocks so that people can never access the protection to which they would otherwise be entitled. But another thing that the Refugee Convention didn't do, precisely because states in 1950 refused the Secretary-General at the time's suggestion that they do put this into the Convention, was to have a proper international responsibility sharing mechanism. They refused to do it, and that responsibility deficit has been with us ever since. So the big problem with the Refugee Convention is not a problem of law, is not a problem of the regime itself, but the lack of political will to cooperate globally to share the responsibility for refugees such that the bulk are not being hosted by some of the poorest countries in the world that don't have the resources to provide the protection that is needed and that countries such as Australia are constantly pushing people away so that they never can get to the states that are equipped to provide it. Can you uh, explain, if you're in Australia, if you're in Europe, you will regularly hear politicians uh, talking about the Refugee Convention and saying that it does offer people the right to claim asylum, it doesn't offer them the right to self-determine their destination. That once they cross a border from their country of origin, where they're in danger, into a safe place or space, that they uh, then become, if they move beyond that, an economic migrant rather than a refugee. Is that accurate when politicians say that? Well, I think the, the question turns on that question of safety or effective protection. There's nothing in the Refugee Convention that says you've got to stop at the first country you get to so that you cross the border and that's it. What the Refugee Convention says is that you are entitled to seek protection um, and 
and seek that in good faith. And that's why uh, we do see people moving onwards in search of protection because they can't obtain a durable solution perhaps in the next country that they get to or in a series of countries on the way. What I think we've seen happen in Europe is that many refugees were prepared to wait in countries like Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey. They waited actually for a good five years. At that point, it became pretty clear that return to Syria was not going to be possible anytime soon. But nor was remaining in those countries going to be a feasible solution for them. And in fact, in Jordan, the Norwegian Refugee Council said, it's very obvious to us that the lack of UN funding now for food aid, precisely because governments had stopped putting money into the, to the World Food Programme, had forced a number of refugees to move on because they, they realised that they actually wouldn't even have food if they stayed put. So that question of, of onward movement really comes back to can you remain there? Is there effective protection available? And if not, then refugees will vote with their feet. So is there, is there a remedy to that? I mean, should that be more clearly defined? Or do countries that are signatories to the Refugee Convention need to have a, a more nuanced understanding of, of what that means? I think there is an understanding of what it means, but there's the political <laughs> Just a rejection pushback. of it. Well, there's the political pushback, um, which is, I think, as I've said, I mean, you know, something like carrier sanctions. These are, I think, huge fines imposed on airlines that transport people who don't have a visa. Now, if you're talking about getting people from country A to country B in a safe manner so that they aren't forced onto dangerous boat journeys or dangerous land journeys, there's one answer. But again, states know that, but they don't want to go there because they don't want people to be able to access the territory uh, more readily. So I think it's not so much a question of the law being unclear, um, but about political posturing to, to try and get around those obligations. And of course, human rights law broadly has kicked in as well since 1951 when the Refugee Convention uh, came into, well, was ratified. Miranda Johnson, how cynical are you about what's being addressed there, the political reaction to all of this. Do you think it's, it is deliberate or that politics is responding to what the public sentiment is or that there is a sort of genuine lack of understanding and knowledge and insight into how you actually deal with something like this? Um, I think there is um, a, a, a lot of confusion. I mean, just the fact that, um, y you know, kind of in, in, in common parlance, you know, confusion over kind of immigrant versus migrant versus refugee. People aren't quite sure of the terminology. I think there's confusion around kind of UN speak and, you know, the convention and 1951 and, you know, sort of what's, what's going on here. Um, one point I did want to make, though, sort of concerning um, that that notion of legal clarity or not is that um, increasingly, um, as we see uh, people who need to flee their homes um, because of climate change, there is not good legal understanding of how those people will be classified, how they will be treated, um, both internationally and in national terms. I mean, we've already seen... Um, residents um, of, of Kiribati, you know, buy up land elsewhere because they're um, concerned, um, and in some cases it's already happening, that territory is being flooded. But um, in Alaska, you've got villages sliding into the sea because as the ice recedes, there's increased coastal erosion. Um, and there's a kind of complex web of whether um, those communities should pay for relocation 
or should the state of Alaska pay for relocation, or is it a federal issue? And it's expensive, you know, it costs millions and millions of dollars just to move these tiny villages. So no one wants to, you know, kind of take uh, responsibility for that. And as there's little legal clarity, there's, there's little um, that can kind of persuade and outline them to do so. When you say an absence of legal clarity yeah. around what their claim might be? Yeah, and about sort of the process of relocation and, and, and legal rights and legal standing. And, um, you know, it, it may sort of have to be interpreted as, um, you know, in, in the realm of human rights instead, I think. Uh, Philip, we're sort of looking broadly at the complexity of all of this and the difficulty for politics and for um, voting populations to respond to it and understand it. You've worked at senior levels in the European Commission. How much of a threat uh, is the refugee crisis, do you think, to something like the European project? I, I want to answer a different question, um, which is... <laughs> The, 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 I mean, I, I think the key to breaking through is to invite people to put themselves in refugees' shoes. So when people make the argument, like the question that you just posed about, well, shouldn't people just move from one country and then be content to stay in a camp for uh, a decade and, and go no further? If I say to people in Britain, well, if, heaven forbid, you had to, to flee Britain as a refugee, would um, you want to spend the rest of your life at a refugee camp uh, in uh, Belgium, or would you want to have the opportunity to seek refuge uh, in uh, Australia or elsewhere? And I would turn that around and say to Australians, if, heaven forbid, you had to uh, seek refuge abroad, would you consider it a satisfactory solution to be saying, well, no, you have to go to a camp in Papua and no further, uh, uh, or uh, uh, would you want to be able um, uh, to go further? I think once you, once you put yourself uh, in someone else's shoes, which is the heart of um, um, these issues, uh, then it's pretty clear what the answer uh, will be. And if we had a bit more empathy, uh, if um, uh, we thought about refugees as fellow human beings, I don't think that we would uh, take uh, the awful approach that many governments do. Shane McAdam, the reality is, though, there is a lack of empathy, isn't there? I think it depends. I think when people are confronted with the individual story and when they, they actually get to see refugees as people, there is a lot of empathy. Um, what we've seen, though, is a, a dehumanisation such that we never get that opportunity. Um, the other point, though, that I'd like to make is that this all comes back to a sense of human dignity and human rights, whether it be in the context of, of climate change, whether it be in the context of people actually trying to reunite with family members, which I think goes to your point as well and something I was alluding to before where I said human rights law has a role to play as well. Um, you know, that, that point of onward movement to actually re reunite with family members who might have gone ahead is something that is, is recognised in international law, but again, uh, we see too many countries blocking. So, so how do you then make progress in convincing people to have empathy and recognise the, the need for human dignity for these people that are on the other side of the world and who are seen in, in sort of terrible pictures on the news but feel quite removed from people's lives in Australia, for example? I think that some of the um, media reporting that we've seen in the last year or so has really tried to put that human face and tell the human story. Um, and, and we saw, I mean, a year ago now, the, the photo of Alan Kurdi was thought to be a pivotal moment. Mm. And I think there was a huge amount of concern 
and a desire to do something that emerged within the general populace. Mm. How you sustain that and how that then feeds into uh, change at a, a government, at a political level, um, I, th I think is an ongoing dialogue. And I, I think we need to be careful not to think, well, we, we cared then, nothing happened, so we might as well give up. I think this is an ongoing process. To change the, the rhetoric at the top also requires a change uh, at the grassroots and to constantly feed that through. Um, yes, we need leadership for sure, but we also need everybody else to be saying, this isn't good enough, we are better than this, and we need to keep recognising that refugees are people who are deserving of protection and whom we can protect. Philip, do you have a view on how you can change minds? Well, the, the Tent Foundation, who um, co-published uh, our report, their, their foundation to, um, set up to help forcibly displaced people, did some opinion research on that to see what was the most um, persuasive arguments in, help, in convincing Europeans to take a more uh, charitable approach. And uh, far more than human rights law, what was persuasive um, was an understanding of the personal situation yeah. um, of refugees. And that's why I think that's at the heart of it, is putting yourself in people's shoes, yeah. understanding what's going on, saying, if that happened to me, how would I want to be treated? That's the way to break through. I mean, I'm a journalist, I tell these kinds of stories. If you ask anyone that works in this kind of profession, when you tell those stories, less people watch them, less people read them, less people share them. There is a, there is a fatigue, there is a resistance. How do you break through that? Well, um, perhaps there might be a resistance, but um, um, uh, that's what the research showed. I think that it's, it's much harder uh, to, take an, uh, to dehumanise someone who, if you have personal contact with them, uh, whether it is direct or indirect, um, uh, you know, you, you, they're no longer the other. They're someone um, uh, who uh, you can um, see as your fellow human being uh, and therefore who you don't want to see suffer. I mean, I think that's, that, that, that's the key to it. And obviously, if you're um, uh, the government, you're doing everything possible to prevent that emotional connection uh, happening, um, whether it's through the language you use, whether it's through the physical distance that you create, um, or whether it is just blanking out um, at the actual images of suffering so that people aren't um, directly confronted um, uh, with uh, the consequences of those decisions. Hamish, in, in I'm going to just tell, yeah. remind people, we're going to take questions in a moment. So if you do have one, uh, please move to the microphones. There's one over there and one over there. And we'll, we'll try and get through as many questions as possible. I was going to say, in, in, in light of your own question and in light of you know, the, the kind of fatigue that you mentioned, how, how would you answer? How would you respond? <laughs> I, I, personally, I think it's enormously challenging. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, to try and tell these stories about refugees in a way that creates human connection. After all, as a journalist, particularly if you work in television, that's what you set out to do every time, is to look for a human story that helps create personal connection. Now, if you can't get a visa to go to Nauru or to get access to Manus Island, you can't do that. Um, so it, it's almost impossible to sort of overcome that, that boundary. Um, you also need to find different ways of telling these stories. We can't go to Syria easily to look at the sort of source of this conflict. So to me, I, I understand where you're coming from on the empathy point, but as a journalist that tries to do that, there's a very practical limit, it would seem to me. You must also see that. Yeah, I, th I sort of think the kind of television um, 
print medium sort of d divide on this is, is, is particularly interesting, but I do think that social media and the power of video um, has, has been um, incredibly important um, in, in, in recent years, and I, I know that that's you know an area that, that the Economist is, is particularly interested in, sort of increasingly looking into video because it does seem to resonate with people. I think naming, I mean, I'm the host of the panel, I shouldn't be contributing, but uh, <laughs> you know, naming people is very important in terms of narrative and understanding and creating connection. I would love to know how many people could name a single refugee case since 2001 when Australia turned around the Tampa until now. You know, the names are not known to us and that, that's what creates, I think, a lot of that distance. We don't get to know these people or, or, or hear their stories. Let's turn it over to you, because uh, they're turning on me. <laughs> could, you, uh, could you identify yourself, please, and keep the question brief? And also, please keep it a question. Um, if you want to make a statement, you can use the hashtag Bodhi. Uh, but we'd love to, to take your questions. And if you've got a particular person you want to address it to, obviously, let them know. Hi, my name is Lynn Hartwig, school counsellor in the Penrith area. Recently, we had a group of children go on a visit to a simulated refugee camp in Auburn, and we had a child who I know wanted to go, and he said, Miss, could you talk to my mum? She's a bit racist, you know. <laughs> so I actually spoke to the mother and talked about the, the experience empowering him in writing, and she said, if my boy wants to go, he can go. I'm thinking primary children are a resource that can change things around. And I guess, Jane, I'm just wondering what you would think of doing some links with primary schools, like at the university level, to possibly work on um, doing this further. Because I work in several schools and I could do it with other schools, but if we had a big profile with primary children who are key agents of change in society, what your thoughts are? I think that that would be a wonderful initiative and I'd be happy to, to speak with you further about it. I mean, we, we do, um, and the, the refugee sector it broadly does work with schools, secondary schools, some with primary schools, and I've heard this uh, mentioned in a number of different fora. Um, I think that if there's interest there, it's something that should definitely be seized upon. Thank you. And Thank there'll you be a forthcoming much. paper called Sorry Mum's a Bit Racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go over to the microphone too. My name is Linda Javen. I've written about refugees as a journalist and as a novelist. Um, I really appreciate what the panel has been saying. I wanted to ask a question about civil disobedience and its role. We recently saw in Australia a young girl stand up on a plane and disrupt the um, de deportation of a refugee. Uh, she was fined, she was taken to court and fined. I don't know, does this sort of thing, um, should we encourage more civil disobedience? Will this actually have an effect or will it have a counter effect because people in power can react against this and say you're just a bunch of law-breaking ratbags who are for refugees? I mean, what is, what is the role of civil disobedience? Jane, would you like to take that? <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm the right person to take that question. But I think, I mean, look, if we look throughout history at civil disobedience, I think we see that that's a great, a great um, uh, 
point of, of change or initiator of, of change. Uh, as a lawyer, as I said, I'm not going to comment on, on whether or not it's appropriate, uh, but I will simply make that observation. Anyone else have anything more adjective to say on that? Well, there's fantastic campaigning going on to, you know, dis disrupt uh, sort of projects, industrial projects that, you know, people feel harm the environment and, um, you know, other kinds of um, you know, sit-ins and demonstrations. And um, I think, yeah, through, throughout history, if you, if you want something done, you've got to do it yourself. But at, a, at, a, at an international level, legally, there is, um, I guess, some effort to look at companies, for example, that enable these sorts of policies. I mean, that is something that is occurring and is building pressure, right? Certainly, and, and within Australia as well. I mean, we've just seen in recent days, Wilson Security has said that they are refusing now to, to continue their work in um, detention centres offshore. So I think there's, you know, the no business in abuse campaign that's operated here. Uh, if we take that to the international level, looking at the role of business and human rights, um, absolutely, those, those things can be very powerful. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, the, the legality of Australia's policies and the offshore uh, detention centres. Is there, is there uh, risk for companies like Serco in running detention centres offshore and keeping people in what amounts to indefinite detention? Reputationally, for sure. But uh, legally? And legally there are, um, I mean, this brings us to domestic areas of, of law as well. Um, and I don't wish to comment on whether there are particular avenues that might be taken. But I mean, I think companies have to look at uh, what it is that they're doing, what they are authorising people to do, and whether that is in accordance with, with legal obligations. I mean, the, the problem uh, that, when I say problem, the issue is that companies can't be parties to treaties, only governments can. But that's not to say that they can operate with impunity. And, and also there's a question then of the role of governments when they are trying to contract out things that they know they can't do themselves. And there is absolute state responsibility for that. Right, but the companies are enabling those acts to take in, place. Look, in, in, certain, I mean, in certain instances, if a company is doing something, if a company is employed by a government to do something that a government itself couldn't do, then uh, there are legal questions there for sure. Can you sue the company for abuses that take place under contracts that it's um, taken from the government? It, it will depend on the... Or does the, the, does the government kind of give them kind of blanket like, protection? It depends on the nature of the, the contract in each case right. and how it's formulated. Okay, I hope that was a sufficient response. Let's go back to microphone number one. Um, hello, my name is Jeannie and I want to point out that a lot of the anti-immigrant sorry, anti-refugee sentiment lately is very Islamophobic and a lot of people seem to be panicking and saying that it's a new phenomenon, but I draw a lot of comparisons to World War II when the Nazis persecuted Jews across Europe and put them in concentration camps, which Australia is currently doing to refugees at Manus Island. Um, my question is how do we, like, people seem to keep talking about and blaming refugees as a threat to economic stability or this capitalist society we seem to function on. But the, I think the real threat is the fact that white supremacy and also the neo-Nazi movement is gaining a lot of traction in Australia and also Europe and America. How do we counteract that? And also, what does the panel think of the fact that First Nations people in America and Australia, so Aboriginal and Indigenous people, have said that as immigrants, probably most people in this room, to Australia ourselves, 
we can't turn away people like who are coming here to seek safety and help and how do we combat racism and okay let's there's quite a lot there but Miranda <laughs> do, do you want to respond to the sort of xenophobia element to this yeah, um, so one of the um, optimistic things is um, that actually um, there are sort of various proxies you can try and use for xenophobia. Um, and um, I, I think after the Brexit vote in particular, um, a, a lot of people were keen to say that, you know, everyone who voted for Brexit, you know, they obviously did it for the kind of the most malicious reasons possible. But actually a lot of the kind of um, ways we, um, you know, try and uh, gauge that kind of xenophobic sentiment um, indicators are actually getting better, sort of the, the share of um, people who um, say that they would mind, for example, if a family member married someone of a different race has plummeted since um, mm. the 1980s. But on, on the question of, of, of white supremacy, um, I previously uh, worked for The Economist in uh, Atlanta, and I was there um, sort of um, around the time that... Um, the sort of gay gay marriage um, rulings came through, um, and I worked with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is an organisation which uh, monitors hate groups in America, and they um, monitor um, white supremacist groups as well. And the sort of general rule of thumb that I um, began to understand in, in my discussions with um, Mark Potok, who, who runs that, and others is essentially sometimes actually when you see a kind of a, a, a spike in these kind of groups, it's actually a sort of um, dying backlash against the fact that change has come and that things are better, and there's a sort of flare, and then you know the kind of embers come again. So, if if you if you feel, ma'am, that you know there has been a kind of flare up of these groups, it might, in a weird way, indicate that you know quite rightly that their time is over. This isn't on. Um, I'm not saying it's a flare-up, I'm saying yeah. it's a permanent structural issue. Like, white Australia policy, for example, like the stolen generations in Australia, like, we have this issue of, like, crisis without borders, but I personally think without borders we wouldn't have a crisis to be in with. Like, we make all these demarcations in racial boundaries and, you know, anti-religious boundaries, but the question is, who is controlling these lines and it's usually people like Donald Trump, for example, who's gaining a lot of traction. And as my last point, I would like to say to everybody in the audience, if you're questioning the moral dilemma, like when evil things happen in society, you are just as culpable if you allow people in power to do those evil things and stand by and watch. Like okay. we're all responsible in this room. And you, you as a journalist, like you say like, you know, I, let, people don't take, read let, these things, but you. you gotta keep doing it anyways. It's not okay. about you, it's about helping these people, okay. like without readership. We'll, we'll take that as a comment. Uh, let's go to <laughs> microphone two. Uh, my name's Dave Gooley. Hamish, you might have already touched on this, but um, I teach legal studies at a high school and we often talk about the role of the media in keeping government accountable. And the kids are always amazed with the blanket ban on media into these offshore detention centres. I'm just wondering about what are the legal mechanisms that the government used to keep the media out and are freedom of information laws any recourse to getting more information out? Uh, so we can humanise the people in those in those camps. You're asking that question of me. Yeah. Or, I mean, I can't speak for the government on, on on what its position is, but obviously Nauru and Papua New Guinea are sovereign states, and they issue journalist visas. We have to comply as journalists every time we travel to another country with whatever the regulations are there for journalist visas. 
And the simple fact is that they're not granted to Australian journalists who say that they want to go to Manus Island or to, to Nauru. Now, there's been a very small number of journalists, I think, who've managed to go to, is it Nauru or Manus? Uh, I think one was Chris Kenny from The Australian and one was in a current affair journalist. I can't tell you, um, you know, how they got their visas, but it is very, very difficult. And clearly freedom of information will help get information about the policy and discussions that occur in Australia, but not in relation to Papua New Guinea or to Nauru. So there, there is a very clear limit. I mean, I, I get requests all the time from international media organisations, can you go and do the Manus Island story or the Nauru story? Yes, you can to a degree. I can find people that have worked there. I can get video pictures out of there through NGO workers, uh, all the sort of stuff that you would have seen and heard. But to get there myself is, it, it, so far for me anyway, is impossible. Maybe I'm just a bad journalist, but, <laughs> but, but it, it, it's very tough. Um, over here. Um, well, thank you very much to the panel for an interesting discussion, especially towards the end when really the role of the media was a bit um, elaborated also in terms of factors of lack of empathy and, and, and lack of data and, and facts. I think this has come a little bit too short and also yesterday, um, Philippe, in your presentation, um, I do have a question um, to you in this context. Um, as an economist, I've followed with great interest the political dialogue, for example, in Japan over the recent um, weeks and months which is now opening up its migration policy due to its demographic um, situation and economic um, developments of the last uh, decade. Am I naive in hoping that one day I will be able to read an article in the tabloid press, not necessarily from your home country, but really says, guys, because you didn't have, get enough children, um, the social security systems of our countries uh, were designed to the disadvantage of future governments. We now require more migrants to come in. Well, I think that's, that's already beginning to happen. You know, the baby boom generation is retiring en masse. Um, the smaller generation which uh, comes behind um, our generation um, either is going to have to work until we drop um, uh, or going to pay huge amounts of tax. Uh, and even then, there'll be a shortage of people to, to look after um, uh, many of the elderly people in the final years um, uh, of uh, their life. Uh, and therefore, um, that creates a pressing demand um, uh, for migrants as taxpayers, uh, as uh, caregivers, um, uh, as just workers in the economy, uh, and in the context of uh, Australia, um, uh, as spreading the cost of infrastructure and other uh, public goods across a, a wider tax base. I think economics is clearly one of the issues. I, I think a reason for optimism uh, is the, the, the radically different um, views of migration and diversity you tend to find among younger people um, who, having grown up in a diverse society, think it's normal uh, and don't understand uh, many of the hang-ups um, uh, that um, uh, uh, some elderly people 
have. So, I mean, I think there's an element of truth to, to what Miranda was saying. I, you know, Trump is a, is, is a, yes. no, the, <laughs> the, 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 the Trump phenomenon is like, is like a last hurrah because you're going to see that, you know, younger Americans um, don't feel um, uh, the same way. And I don't think they're going to be a constituency about for building a wall um, uh, among younger Americans. The problem is you can do a hell of a lot of damage um, between now and then. So in the short term, it's a very dangerous moment. Uh, I think in the, in, in the medium to long term, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic about um, uh, how we're going to look to, at, at migration. I, I appreciate that you're not um, saying this is a necessarily, but um, I think it's also important to say that um, you know, newcomers may not be uh, the, the kind of fix-all solution to um, kind of uh, problems of population in, in, in the rich world, because actually often people, um, when they move, their fertility rates um, adjust to kind of um, the, the, the local average, as it were. So... Um, if a tabloid newspaper did say that, it might be a bit of an overblown claim. But <laughs> uh, We're running out of time, so we'll try and get these last two questions in. If you could try and give a brief, that'd be great. So I have a follow-on, actually, from her question, is that for Australia, is there an analytical answer to the number of refugees that we should take in? So if we have X number of teachers, Y number of doctors, this amount of resources, our population should be blank, and of that, we can take then this many refugees. And is anyone doing the math to figure that answer out? Does anyone want to take that? I guess we're sort of seeing that, that uh, conflation of the migration program with the, the refugee humanitarian intake. Is it, is it right to link humanitarian intake to need? Well, I, no. The reason for allowing in refugees is um, because they're in need of protection. Um, my argument is not that you allow in refugees uh, in, uh, because you need workers. My argument is once you've allowed in people um, who need protection, they can then contribute to the economy, which is good for them and good for society. So I don't think you should be going out and saying, you know, um, we're looking for uh, teachers and doctors, let's bring in more refugees. Saying we should be allowing in more, more people who are in desperate need, uh, and once they're here, they can then do those jobs. I think it's a different way of looking at it. There's 63.5 million people who'd like to be relocated. Obviously, Australia can't take 63.5 million people. There is a number somewhere out there which the population can absorb. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure there is a number. I mean, I'll give you an example. Israel, after the collapse of communism, the population rose by about 15% um, within seven years, 8% within two years, which, you know, in the context of Australia, is like 3.6 million arriving, roughly. Um, and you would probably think that that is beyond the ability of the economy to absorb. And actually what you found was um, that within seven years, wages adjusted and unemployment was no higher than before. So um, the capacity, it's, it's, um, I, I don't think that you can necessarily say that there is um, a, a, an upper limit like that on how, how many people that uh, an, an economy can absorb. Yeah, and it's... Sorry, I was just going to say, it's not like there's a fixed amount of pie that has to be cut a certain sure. way. Refugees can help grow the pie, so there's even more. But just one point you made... There are 65 million people displaced. Not all of those people need to move somewhere else to be resettled permanently. The UNHCR says that if, what their figure would be is if only 10% of the world's refugees, of which there are 21 million, could be resettled, that would assist. And unfortunately, um, governments have said we're, we refuse to commit to that on a formal basis. 
Um, but if you look at that, 21 million refugees in the world right now, population of 7 billion people, that is eminently doable. If we can make it very quick, we'll take this last yep. question. Hi, afternoon. My name is uh, Nick Wood. I'm the uh, director of a consultancy called Climate Policy Research. This is a question for Jane. Um, the United Nations have just called you and asked you to redraft the Refugee Convention to take climate displacement into account. What would you do? Well, you've got, you've got one minute 30. I can do it in one minute 30. <laughs> it might surprise you to know that I've actually said I don't think we should be opening up the Refugee Convention to be redrafted. Two reasons. One's pragmatic. States would not agree to any expansion right now. But the second one is a more conceptual issue, and that's, that's as follows. Climate change in and of itself doesn't displace people. It's a, a threat amplifier. So people who are already living in environmentally vulnerable situations, impoverishment, um, insecurity, lack of education and so on, what happens is climate change amplifies those existing risks. That therefore begs the question, if you try and redefine who deserves protection, how do we do that? Do we say, it's if you can show a link to climate change, it's if you can show a link to a disaster, what about impoverishment because we could argue that you know, the global financial system um, works in such a way that people are in systemic situations of impoverishment or inequality. What I do think we need to do is look at a number of different ways in which we can address this. First one is disaster risk reduction and adaptation and mitigation. Second one is how can we enable people to remain in their homes for longer by doing those sorts of things, but where they can't, by enabling voluntary opportunities for people to migrate now rather than having to wait until they reach a situation like we're seeing with refugees where they have no choice but to flee. And that's what we want to avoid is a situation of humanitarian crisis, of a remedial response. What we need to be doing here is creating proactive forward-looking responses. Um, and in that sense, yes, we need to be able to ensure that we have the capacity to protect people who need it, but we also need to be trying to avoid that displacement in the future. As UNHCR said, the writing was on the wall with Syria. Governments didn't take the forecasting seriously. With climate change, we've got the forecasting. Now's the time to take it seriously. Probably a good note to end it on. <laughs> If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.